On Being with Krista Tippett is supported in part by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Discover the latest findings on neuroscience, cosmology, and the origins of life at templeton.org. These are some of the words and ideas that are brought into conversation with each other in James Bridle's writing and that drew me into conversation with them. The notion of the broad commonwealth of life that we are inextricably entangled with and suffused by. The paradox that the more accurately you try to measure some things, the more unmeasurable they become. The interplay between intelligence and consciousness and our belonging to the natural world at a cellular level. The way words we use all the time have kept this interplay alive in us, even as civilization forgot. And an animating entry point to all of this for James Bridle is our lives with technology and what artificial intelligence can and cannot do. You might want to take a walk with this one. It is big and full of brain food and an enlivening opening of imagination to possibilities that are emergent now. You might not think of intelligence the same way again, or the truth of mythology, or the letters of the alphabet, or what it means to be human. And you will smile next time you access the place where your digital life is stored and realize what it says about us that we named it the cloud. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. James Bridle is an artist and technologist and author of the fascinating new book, Ways of Being, Animals, Plants, Machines, The Search for a Planetary Intelligence. They live on the Greek island of Aegina and spoke to me from Athens. There was some serendipity in me reading your book and getting to really delve into it the way I did. I mean, obviously, I read a lot for my work, but I was getting ready to go on essentially kind of a sabbatical for 10 weeks. And um, I guess the galleys, the copy I have of your book that is completely marked up is a galleys copy. And it was sitting there and I was kind of picking up books saying, you know, let's see what's come in that I might take with me as a big read this summer. And uh, I was heading to Patmos, to the island of Patmos. Oh, lovely. And so, and so I saw that you were in, in, in Greece, and I, and I thought, oh, that's it. <laughs> it's <laughs> meant to be. So, yeah, it's, so I've been kind of with you. I've been thinking with you and learning from you for a few months now, and it's great to finally speak. Yeah, well, that's lovely to hear. Thank you. I'm glad it's, I'm glad it's been of interest. And uh, it certainly sounds like it mirrors a bit some of the sort of synchronicities that went into writing it in the first place, uh, which has been a whole whole train of kind of bits of the universe coming and knocking on my door and saying, you should probably pay attention to this thing right now. Yeah. And uh, occasionally <laughs> listening. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, I, I would just like to know a little bit about, uh, you. are you from London? Is that right? Did you grow up in London? Yeah, yeah, I grew up in London. I'm, uh-huh. I'm British from there. And you, in your person and in your work, you bring together disciplines that aren't necessarily in a robust conversation, um, art, technology. I wonder if, you know, in the world of your childhood and your earliest life, did were these fascinations planted in you and were they planted together in some way? I don't really find that in my childhood, I'll be honest, um, in that I, you know, I grew up in a, a very urban environment. 
and also in boarding schools in the countryside, uh, which are, are terrible things right. and don't yeah. don't make you love the countryside in any way at all. Right. And actually, the main the main route that way of my work would be the internet, which kind of arrived when I was kind of twelve or thirteen. So I always say that I I grew up with the internet Mm -hmm. and I'm one of that band of people who sort of straddle it a little bit and so have a I think a particular feeling of feeling for technology which perhaps our our parents generations will never have and that uh, younger generations will never know because it's always been present so we have this kind of quite odd personal relationship with it I often think and I just go where my interests take me essentially Mm -hmm. and uh, and this is where they've taken me in the last few years. Yeah before I really I I want to focus on on the ways of being book and everything that's in there. Um, it's so rich. And just to note that your last book was um, The New Dark Age, Technology and the End of the Future. <laughs> so spoiler alert, there's a lot of um, pointing in that title at the fact that it was, you know, it was a book that had some caution and pessimism about our lives with technology. Yeah, it's not a cheery book. No. It's not a book I recommend to people if they want to feel particularly good about the world. Um, you know, so then I'm, but I think that this new book, uh, yeah, just, just to what you just said, there's so much in it about life writ large and intelligence writ large and all we're learning in those directions. And um, I think in the introduction, you you have, um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in, questions as a form of words and and the power of questions and how questions orient us. And there are a couple of questions you have um, that to me felt uh, like kind of operating questions, orienting questions that and you, you could say everything that follows takes off from. But, you know, what future is being imagined here and what intelligence is at work? And I'm, I'm curious, were those questions that you began with or did they emerge as lenses through which you were exploring what you were seeing? Yeah, I mean, those are definitely kind of foundational questions for the book. And they they do come out of all the work I've, I've been doing previously. Um, you know, you bring up New Dark Age, and that was really an inquiry into kind of what has gone wrong with the technologies that we thought we were building, that were supposed to be, or we were told were going to be, and we naively maybe believed were going to be in some way kind of emancipatory and community building and knowledge enhancing and all of these lovely ideas and how that, you know, really hasn't been the the case. And New Dark Age was an inquiry into how that came to be and and the state that we're in. And and, um, Ways of Being is very much a, you know, one way, a very personal way for me out of, a fairly dark place that that book took me to. Mm -hmm. And I felt that in order to kind of reframe this question from being, you know, how did we get to this bad place into like essentially how do we get out of it? There's Mm -hmm. there's two parts to that. I mean, the the first part is, you know, this question of um, what future is being envisioned? Like, you know, how exactly we frame, how we understand really truly what it is that we're building and then how we imagine alternatives. Mm -hmm. You know, a really clear-eyed view on exactly where we are in the things that we make and the relationships we have with the world around us. And then, a, you know, a reasonably clear vision of the alternative that might be possible to that. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and that second question, what intelligence is being envisioned to, is, a re- is really a question about the nature of intelligence itself. Yeah. Um, because what I realised was this term intelligence was being used everywhere. Um, and people weren't really questioning what that meant. Uh, and we're taking so often, you know, the definitions that they were given by other people uh, as being as being definitional as as shaping the entire discourse that was possible around that and absolutely shaping as a result you know what we would 
where we would find ourselves in the future. And I realized that by troubling that definition somewhat, like other, other futures could be envisioned, could be imagined, or in fact, even other presents. You know, and I, it's, this is just bringing back to me that um, I wasn't sure as I started into all that you're kind of collecting there, that well, t- intelligence didn't feel like a big enough word to me. And one of the larger contexts of also why and how that language of intelligence became too small, you know, you know really, I think the story you're telling, and I just want us to start talk about this story. And it, so when you say options, right, that there are options, we don't, it doesn't have to be this way, or there are other futures um, that can be imagined. This is all unfolding, right? This is not an, a cerebral intellectual exercise about what could be. You're telling a story of our time, a kind of multitudinous, interactive story of our time. But in some ways, I think it's probably important to to kind of put on the table that that seeing this story and investigating and taking it seriously does also mean getting conscious of... Um, really kind of the enlightenment way of thinking and seeing that we, all of us, are still so formed by, um, certainly the 20th century was shaped by, kind of 18th, 19th century, which had so much to do with taking things apart and seeing the differences between them and ordering and classifying, and that that as a framework as how the world works. And one of the just core realities that you then go on to investigate and describe all in all that we're learning now about how the world works. The closer we examine, this is you, and the more forcefully we interrogate and attempt to classify the world, the more complex and unclassifiable it becomes. And actually that science itself in our generation is breaking down those taxonomies and what got reduced and that's a big piece of the story you're telling. And it's also something that I'm just so fascinated by. And I feel like amidst all that we have to be discouraged about, uh, realistically, uh, it's one of the most uh, wonderful and um, thrilling and kind of hope-giving aspects of being alive now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you were, when you were speaking there about this, um, this kind of unfolding that we are always part of, you know, the image that sprang to mind for me was was particularly the fact that we we live within these kind of multiple overlapping time frames of understanding. Yeah. Um, by which I mean that, um, like you said, there's there's processes happening within science now that are undoing the work yeah. of previous generations of scientists and the frameworks they built, or at least you know, if not fully undoing them, shaping them into kind of radical new forms. Mm-hmm. But just at the point when those frameworks only really just being understood more widely by the public or you know by, by any of us who aren't like ourselves at the cutting edge of kind of scientific research yeah you know and at the same time there's there's still you know even now this deep divide between the humanities and the sciences which produce you know deeply uh, differing kind of worldviews and understandings of what's happening and um also the huge split you've obviously already alluded to which is between the kind of dominant western sciences and non-western non-dominant kind of understandings of the world yeah and and all of us live within a um some different kind of overlapping fraction of those things in some like weird bit of the Venn diagram of understanding between these things that are both different ways of framing the world, but also parts of the same process kind of at different stages. Um, I think to the, the phrase, um, 
uh, the evolutionary uh, Lynn Margulis. Yes, of, and I first heard about her from Robert McFarlane, but I, you yeah. know, it's one of these names that then comes up everywhere. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so she's important in your in kind of what you're seeing. Well, I, I just particularly yeah. wanted to just there repeat yeah. that, repeat that phrase of hers, which is that everything is equally evolved. Mm. Um, that's a really resonant phrase for me that was was really important in my thinking. Everything um, is equally evolved. Everything is equally evolved. Everything has been everything has been on this planet for as long as everything else. Everything has been in this universe for as long as everything else. <laughs> Nothing is more evolved than anything else. Everything has been evolving for the same length of time. Mm. Everything has been becoming for the same length of time. So we, while we live inside this unfolding and we live at kind of different levels of it and different levels of understanding and different parts of that process, um, that, that simple scientific but also, you know, deeply, uh, I don't want to use this word spiritual, just mean like the, a deep quality of being mm-hmm. in this universe is that everything is part of that unfolding process that is still going on and that is still one of learning. And that immediately destroys any idea of kind of hierarchy or division for me uh, that might shape or inform that kind of splitting and clumping that's been the last century scientific legacy and that we are finally getting rid of. And kind of even just back to that idea of intelligence being too small, I mean, one of the one of the things we're learning is that these decisions we'd made about what was intelligent and what was not and our superior human intelligence over against all other intelligence is just being radically opened up, right? I mean, I think Robin Wall Kimmerer said to me, I, I can't think of a single single scientific study in the last few decades that has demonstrated that plants or animals are dumber than we think. It's always the opposite. <laughs> we keep revealing the fact that all kinds of creatures have a capacity to learn, to have memory, and that we're at the edge of this wonderful evolution in really understanding the sentience of other beings. And that, I mean, that's another way of, of stating Richardson's paradox, right? Which is what, what, you, what you mentioned earlier. Yes, this, so I this, wanted you to, to talk about Lewis Fry Richardson. I wanted oh, to I'll ask, talk about actually ask you. I'm very happy to. to. Yeah, that's, yeah, go on. Okay. Um, well, I mean, I first got deeply into Richardson's work um, because he was one way of understanding for me actually what happened with technology in the 20th century, in that um, he was a meteorologist who um, was doing a bunch of kind of meteorology work before the First World War. And then during the war, with pencil and paper, he did some of the first mathematical calculations of what would become contemporary meteorology to predict the weather using maths. Um, But Richardson kind of stayed interesting throughout his life because as a pacifist, you know, he, um, uh, as as a Quaker, um, he kept doing these kind of weird, interesting pacifist things, like writing several books in which he tried to establish uh, a mathematical basis for... um, for pacifism. Oh, right. Uh, and and was it, didn't he try to calculate why, why, if it was more, if the distance of borders or something had more, that made war more likely or something? Yeah, that was his, that was his idea. He basically uh-huh. thought that um, the likelihood of two countries going to war was like a function of their, the length of their shared borders. Mm-hmm. And so in order to prove this, you know, scientifically, he had to find the length of all those shared borders. And he wrote to all these countries and looked it up in kind of almanacs and went through the British Library and all these kind of things. And he discovered that all the lengths were different and no one knew the lengths of their countries at all. Right. And as a mathematician, this really bothered him. So he started trying to work, figure out why everyone was measuring the lengths of their borders wrong. And he discovered that it is kind of impossible to like measure the length of a border 
because if you use a meter, a ruler that's a kilometre long, you'll miss out on all the kind of squiggles along that route. And if you use a, a ruler that's a metre long, you'll miss out on all the tiny little kind of divots in the coastline uh, that are within that metre, if you think of the kind of you know mm. wavy line of a beach. Mm. And what he discovered is the smaller the ruler you use, the longer the border gets. Uh, <laughs> and what he discovered... Uh, kind of 20, 30 years before Benoit Mandelbrot uh, described them, was fractals. Yes. These things that become more complex the deeper you look at and them. And Mandelbrot was, I guess, that e- equation came out of Lewis Fry Richardson's work or was inspired yeah, by it. I yeah, didn't realize yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he'd seen Richardson's work and, yeah. and thought there was something in that. Yeah. Um, and that that's one of the kind of, for me... I, I can't speak to its scientific value, though I know it's kind of reference and all kind of way. But for me, it's one of just the, the greatest realizations. And one way it's a, it's a way of kind of resisting these kind of totalizing hierarchies by saying that, you know, if you look at something more deeply, uh, it's going to become more complex and you can't, nothing's ever that simple. But also, nothing is ever that simple. And that's wonderful and exciting. And it makes everything really, really fascinating and interesting because yeah. there is always more to discover if you pay more attention. the way you you wrote about Lewis Fry Richardson's paradox. You said, instead of resolving into order and clarity, every closer examination reveals only more and more splendid detail and variation, which struck me as as a statement about life (laughs) as well as the measuring of a border. Um, Actually, I want to come back to Lynn Margulis. Um, Her work also... uh, you know, illuminates these things we're talking about in in in, in other ways. Um, one of the things she said was that life did not take over the world by combat, uh, but by networking. Um, so, I mean, one of as you said, one of the one of some of the science that's being undone is at least simplistic descriptions of um, evolution and survival of the fittest, right? And I would you talk about this idea of endosymbiosis? which also is a new way of seeing vitality and even ourselves. Yeah, I mean, with the very strong caveat that I'm not an evolutionary biologist, I probably may get huge numbers of facts about this wrong in explaining it, uh, which I tried to research much, much harder for the book, but I'm yeah. just talking now. Um, but endo- endosymbiosis is, the, is uh, Margulis's framework for understanding how complex cells, i.e. the cells that make up our body and, and all other living organisms, how they first emerged. Symbiosis itself is the, is the process of two things coming or working together. Um, endosymbiosis is the kind of uh, the absorption of one by the other. And um, Margulis's theory that's pretty strongly supported these days is that the complexity of, for example, the animal cell is an endosymbiosis of, of what used to be multiple small organisms. Yeah. So that the nucleus and the um, other kind of organelles within the cell have gradually kind of accreted into one organism. But in fact, the cell itself is at that level, at the level of the individual cell, a tiny community of different organisms that millions and millions of years ago decided to cooperate and work together 
within one like tiny community and then they built up into larger and larger and larger communities and that everything in fact has been built out of these kind of communities of organisms working together and that scales all the way up you know to the to the human body that you know as yes. we're more and more aware of is now this kind of like walking assemblage of beings uh, we carry around you know this kind of two and a half kilos or whatever it is of other creatures within our bodies in our gut and on our skin yeah and that that to even speak of to speak of ourselves as individuals scientifically is starting to prove like harder and harder yes. as scientists make kind of really extraordinary discoveries about things like the fact that you know our intelligence to use that word as it is measured by science is highly dependent upon the health of the creatures in our guts Yes. Like we have a symbiotic yes. relationship yeah. with our guts that isn't just about digesting food, but is also about how we think, how we fend off disease, about all these other things. We are communities in of ourselves. Yes. Oh, it's so fascinating. Also, that aren't we, by some measures, where we have it, there may be more microbial cells in a human body than human cells? To, so to even say that we are I mean, fully again, I, to, to even, yeah, we increasingly find it difficult to, to draw these distinctions, I yeah. think. But uh, I, I remember, you know, when I first learned that, um, or the, the two of the two of the facts I think that, that most kind of blew my mind. Reading this, one of which is that it seems likely that that the atom of the cell originally came from um, the closest living, free living relative to the the cell in the centre of our of our cells today is is the typhus bacillus. Um, <laughs> something that we kind of fear as a sort of destroyer of life is also our kind of great 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 million times grandmother uh, yeah. at the centre of our cells, and also that. Um, that even things that have been incorporated into our into our actual DNA, into our written instructions have come from the outside, that something like th some 30, 40% of the human genome hasn't evolved as we you know understand it in our kind of very, most of our basic understanding of science, but has actually been kind of written into it by viruses, um, yeah. including most of our reproductive system and including particularly the placenta. Um, the mammalian placenta was written into the DNA of, of animals multiple times, billions of years ago, by other viruses coming from outside the mammalian line. So in all of these ways, we're just products of our environment, not just in a kind of sociological sense, but in a very, very deep, fleshly, embodied sense yes. that we are this coming together of so much life. Here's, a, here's another um, couple of sentences from, from you that I, I really love. Life is soupy. Mixed up and tumultuous, muddying the waters is precisely the point because it's from such nutritious streams that life grows. <laughs> Indeed. I, I was also really fascinated by your description of Pando, which seems to me that was just a single clonal aspen, um, one of the largest and oldest individuals on earth and yet defying again the notion of an individual um would you kind of talk about it just because i wonder if something like pando is also something that we literally could not see before we had some of these lenses on that you and i've been talking about yeah i mean pando is such a beautiful example of, of exactly that so our idea of a tree is something that is above ground that is the trunk and the crown because that is what we see. Mm -hmm. What we have failed to see, most of us have failed to see for most of time, is the, uh, their connections underground. And, and in the case of, of Pando, these connections are very explicit. And in the fact that there is one single root system that underlies tens of thousands of what we see as trees. 
So what we see at ground level is a forest of aspen trees. But that forest is one single organism. And each tree is in fact a shoot of a common uh, one single root system. So they all share the, the same DNA. They are in fact one organism. And, and this was not recognised, this was not seen until the kind of 1950s or 1960s, and is for me a brilliant example of this kind of complete reframing of what constitutes an organism, but also of that's such a clear, you know, illustration of the narrowness of what we see mm-hmm. and extends well into, not just into a kind of huge clonal organism like, like Pando, who is yeah, possibly one of the largest, heaviest, oldest creatures of any kind on it Earth. It says between 80,000 and a million years old. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, also gets us into the the, the much more complex uh, symbioses that are happening in, in all forests between trees and fungi and the communication that's been happening between them that we're only kind of just learning about. Yeah. Most of us, again, within the, you know, dominant traditions, etc. Um, you know, we, we are... We're shaped by what we can perceive, and <laughs> um, what we can perceive is is shaped by, you know, both by our kind of the tools that we have to hand, our physiognomy, but also our imaginations, and the culture in which we exist. But it doesn't take much pushing on those things to to change those perceptions. I think in really interesting ways. Yeah, and and as we touched on when we began speaking, you know, we're talking about a lot of disciplines that are themselves unfolding and also unfolding in conversation with each other. And you, you've you been in, on this kind of sweeping investigation and where your work and your entry point is distinct and I think builds on others is that you come at all of this from the perspective of a fascination and engagement with our lives with technology. Mm-hmm. And I was very struck by this story you told about Walking with Suzanne Samard in a redwood forest outside Vancouver. Suzanne's also been on the show and and taking in uh, a kind of kinship with the internet. Um, and you were thinking about the mycorrhiz eye, the kind of underground <laughs> networks, nodes, and life, right? Energy. Yeah, flow. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that, that was it. Was one of the key moments. I think it kind of yeah. An awakening for me in which, you know, a previous silence was essentially broken. Or I mm. sort of took the earmuffs off or whatever it is. And suddenly everything broke into song. And, <laughs> and just by a very small shift in awareness, the world starts to speak mm. in a way that it really hadn't before. Not necessarily immediately, but just by letting those kind of various encounters sit with you. Yeah. And uh, and discovering, indeed, as I think maybe you were pointing out, that there was this deep relationship between our coming to understand the mycorrhizal networks and our construction of, you know, um, technological networks of the internet. I, it was necessary for me to make that connection. Um, that story being, if if you want me to briefly, yeah, yeah, outline please, it, yeah. Um, there is a, there is a very definite connection between these two things in that the first researchers to recognize and start to map out these mycorrhizal networks in the kind of 1970s and 1980s were also some of the first people to be connected to the nascent internet because they worked within um, kind of national research institutes and universities, which were the first places to be connected to the internet. So they were some of the first people to build mental models of networks in the way that we currently understand them. And um, the development of the internet also led to not just these new kind of metaphors of interconnected nodes um, of the network as we come to understand it, but also methods of analysis. So hmm. 
beginning in the 1980s, people studying the internet developed a whole new kind of form of mathematics called um, network theory, uh, topological studies of how complex networks interacted that there simply wasn't a mathematical description for before. But people realized almost immediately they could apply to these mycorrhizal networks and they became another way of seeing and understanding them even more deeply. And what I, what I really understood from that was that, you know, as humans, we're not that great at really paying attention to things outside our own minds, perceptions, immediate experiences and things that have happened to us. Um, we quite often seem, and I don't fully understand this process, but I see it happening all the time. We seem to need to build these kind of internal models of the world in our own little toy-like creations in order to see the things outside us. And that seemed mm. to be what happened with mm. this kind of development. We didn't develop the internet in order to understand the trees. There's something more interesting, complex going on there. But they happened. That's, that's how it worked. We had to build our own little networks before we saw the networks that already exist in the world. Just as it seems, it feels to me, as I describe in the book, we need to build our own models of intelligence, however we can pour in artificial intelligence, in order to see the intelligences that have been around us all along. Maybe mm. that's why we're doing the AI, pushing us towards it. And maybe, I'm just thinking this now, yeah. this is probably incredibly naive of me, because of course that's what we always do. We have to make these kind of stories about what the world might look like in order to map that back onto the world again and kind of make those things true, essentially, to figure out our kind of path towards them. So maybe that's what AI and uh, network theory actually are. They're just new stories about the world that make that kind of world accessible to us properly again. Yeah, and I, I think our, our brains are working so hard to create order out of chaos, right? So that we're not completely overwhelmed <laughs> by everything, but it also means that we're limited in what we see. I mean, also, I'm just thinking in this connection, as there are advances, like the ones we're talking about, of seeing more of reality, and it also makes sense to us, then hopefully that means that collectively our brains can start to see different, right? To, 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 yes, starting with this idea of yours, you know, how does the world work, that we start to have a different sensibility about that. Yeah, I think as long as we do, as long as we also manage to maintain a, uh, an awareness, an ability to comprehend or at least live with, like, the unknown and the unknowable, I think, because it's this fascinating, endless back and forth balance between wanting to make sense of the world, yeah. you know, and trying to understand it. And, and as you said, reduce this noise, reduce this complexity so that we can kind of live meaningfully within it. Yeah. While at the same time, there's, there's always something potentially destructive in that, as we've seen in the kind of history of science, this kind of, a, you know, attempting to frame everything within a particular theory. So it, so it, it collapses again. And I think there's so, something so fascinating in that tension because that's where we always live. Like wanting to make sense of it, but not wanting to reduce the world to such extent that it stops being kind of interesting or or like itself anymore. You know, scientists in the dominant tradition are also a lot of them. They're the people most comfortable living with doubt. Yes, that most of us are so bad at living with. Yes, because that's where they live all the time, really on the edge of understanding stuff, and they know they know more than anywhere else that there's you know there's huge limits to what we can know about the world, and so that's something I think we can learn from a lot of scientists.
Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute. Fetzer supports a movement of organizations that are applying spiritual solutions to society's toughest problems. Learn more at Fetzer.org. You work with this language of um, the more than human world. This is more language of you, the broad commonwealth, if you said that a lot ago, of the non-human life with which we are inextricably entangled and suffused by. And these are our companions on the great adventure of time and becoming. I know that phrase was originally coined by the philosopher David Abram. I wonder if if he was speaking more in terms of um, more than human in terms of the natural world, I know for you it's animals and plants and it's machines. Is that right? It's animals, plants, machines, but it might also be kind of ecosystems and inorganic mm-hmm. life as well and, and mm-hmm. much else. I mean, I, I love the phrase. I, I find myself using it less and less because I still want something that doesn't have the word human in it right. <laughs> to talk about what I'm talking about. Yeah. The beauty of the phrase is it, is it kind of points towards the non-human without negating the human that mm-hmm. reminds us that our perception of the non-human is always rooted in the human, but that the human is not necessarily at the center of everything. So it is a really good phrase for that. Um, But yeah, I I guess I do yearn for something that really is a a way of talking about agential life, life that that is up to something that's bubbling around and doing stuff and that we can meet and have conversations with that uh yeah i'm just i'm just always looking for that yeah. well, I, I guess maybe what i'm doing more now is actually looking to have those conversations uh, i think i think that's really the the thing that has to follow um you know a lot of the where, where i go in in the book is towards not just ways of thinking ways of being but actually ways, ways of living with meaningfully and injustice um and in peace with with other beings uh, yeah. and that that really requires like a a very direct engagement with them and meaningfully, you know, actually talking to other creatures, other beings. Uh, and so, yeah, how, how we do that, how we address them, how we think of ourselves and others and the relationships that we might have, that's that's more than maybe just words. Um, it's the, um, or at least they're words that will only emerge from those conversations rather than ones that we kind of make up to try and frame them is maybe how I'd put it. Yeah, and I, I think one of the things I loved most about your writing and and this is also a fascination of mine, is, is is the importance of language in walking that path, right? And I mean, I, my understanding was, I think from you, that this phrase, the more than human world, was in the first instance about that, that language itself is a way that we reorient. Um, and I think some of the things that I just so love about what you have investigated and is how language itself in ways we rarely pause to consider is this reminder that we've carried with us all these <laughs> millennia of the fact that we are part of the natural world, not in it. Um, I, I love to talk about some of that. I mean, the the move, so onomatopoeia, which I think is something, you know, one learns in school, but how that is reminding us where we got sound from and what our, right, where we learned language. Um, yeah, so so what I talk about in the book is these various kind of theories of of language origin, and yeah. I draw heavily on on David Abrams. He's mentioned particularly his book, The Spell of the Sensuous, in which he talks about um, 
you know, the body's relationship to the world, that we're only capable of, of making the sounds we make by drawing them into our bodies mm -hmm. and that the, the sound of language itself is, is you know, shaped by the armature of our kind of muscles and rib cages and the structure of our throats um, or the fact that our, our actual writing systems still contain these elements of the natural world. Yes. Uh, you know, he, he talks about the kind of the very early scripts um, kind of uh, Syriac pre-Egyptian pictographs that were mostly kind of essentially pictures of animals. You know, the Aleph that became the A was originally a bull's head. Yes. Uh, the uh, Koth that became Q is a is a monkey tail. You know, these things. They're still we're basically still drawing tiny pictures of animals, even though the the words we make have kind of lost all their reference to the natural world. I mean, I should say for when I was reading you, just I st I started to feel this move from as you said pictographic language, which made clear this belonging, right, and origins to the phonetic alphabet, which really was a form of estrangement for human beings. Yeah. The pictograms describe the world as it actually is. If you draw a picture of a thing, you're referring to that actual thing. Yeah. And slowly, even though those pictograms came to represent, you know, by, by, by kind of ancient Egyptian times, pictograms, they start to represent concepts more than things. Uh, but they are still rooted very much in pictures of actual things. Yeah. Once the script becomes kind of Latinized, you know, it actually refers to the sound of language, that the letters are not things themselves. They're, yeah. they're ways of pronouncing words that mean other things. So that the whole language, which is also how most of us think, but not all of us, crucially, mm -hmm. um, starts to kind of remove itself and become something that refers only to itself and only to the human. And so it takes this kind of immense effort all this invention of words that we've been talking about, the more than human, and all these really convoluted ways we have of trying to express ourselves, because we're kind of fighting this kind of prison of language that we're stuck within, that is constantly trying to separate us from the world. I mean, it's, yeah. it's no accident that all the great kind of religious spiritual traditions teach kind of silence and awareness and clearing one's mind and trying to get away from this constant process of language, yeah. which is a constant process of estrangement. In the space it's a con the constant letters, separation yeah. of oneself from the world. Yeah. Um, and you can do magic and wonderful things with it, of course. Um, but there's also, you know, I, for me, it's the heart of it is always this kind of apophatic tradition, this tradition of pointing towards that which is unspeakable and unsayable because it cannot exist within language. Yeah. Because language, as we understand it, is something unique to humans. And the truth of the universe is not unique to humans. So it cannot be expressible in language. I do think that's also a wisdom of spiritual traditions that understanding the limits, the limits of language. Um, one that was so fascinating to me is um, the letter M. This is so stunning. You know, when you're talk we're talking about the pictographic to the phonetic, that the letter M, our letter M is derived from the Semitic letter mem. The Hebrew word for water, mem, was drawn as a little wave so that M is, and I mean, you can still see that. You can see it as yeah. a wave. If that is presented to you, that that's what it is, then I see this letter that I use all the time completely differently. Yeah, the, the M is a wave and the O is an I, as in the I, the oculus. Uh, the, the Q is the monkey, the A is the bull. Like they're there, they're just living, yeah. just dancing around in the things that we're trying to write and say right in front of us. And we're using them for all these kind of complex, like, you know, um, yeah, abstract ideas, and they're kind of just sitting there winking at us the whole time. Yeah, reminding us who we are. <laughs> yeah. um, and then you make me so aware that we are still naming things out of this primal place in ourselves, right? The World Wide Web or the cloud, the cloud. 
Yeah, it sneaks up in all these funny ways, doesn't it? Because we have no way of describing things other than the way the world has has taught us to, you know? Yeah. As the, the, the languages, the theories of, some of the older theories of the languages that I talk about, you know, I, I'm not going to remember them all unless you have the book in front of you, which I don't. Um, but these these theories that were put together for the origin of language in um, in the 19th century, which were kind of... Um, uh, what is it? It's like hoo ha theory and and uh, bow wow theory and and these different ideas that language evolved from like the grunts that we made when we were exerting ourselves or mm-hmm. the noises that animals made or you know or um, the very serious proposition that's been put forward by a number of anthropologists that we you know first made noises in order to call dogs um, <laughs> but that was actually yeah. something that that, that pre existed the form of language mm-hmm. um, but ne- made us need to call so maybe the first the first people we spoke to were actually non-humans. Uh, that there's always been this... Uh, the language has always been a kind of calling out to the world and, the, and the, the world is always kind of speaking back to us, as you say, through language, even when we're talking about the most high-tech things imaginable, like the web and the cloud, because those are the things we have to think with. Those are the things that originally taught us to think at all. Coming back to being in Greece, where where you live now, um, and where I was when I read this book, um, I had this sensation there that the mythology is practically like a natural element, right? It almost felt like it's in the air, and it's in the ocean, and it's um, in the soil. And you tell this amazing story about... And of course, myth- mythology. Somebody said the other day, I, you know, mythology is what is more than true. Or I, I like the definition of um, a myth is not something that never happened; it's something that happens over and over and over again. But you have this amazing story about nymphs, the order of the naming of a chain of islands in mythology. Yeah. Um, so that Indeed. so that as we've been talking about, like Indeed. language carries truths that science catches up with, and or we catch up with, and. It feels like there's a similar thing to say about mythology in this story. Yeah, absolutely. So that that story is um, is told partly in geology, which is that 14,000 years ago, at the end of the last ice age, the Saronic Gulf, which is the kind of large body of water which connects Athens to the main Mediterranean, uh, the Mediterranean was much lower. And uh, the islands that now poke out of that gulf, one of which I live on, formed a kind of land bridge um, separating the sea into a series of lakes. Uh, and then over the subsequently few thousand years, the, the levels of the Mediterranean rose and, the, and that land bridge became a series of islands. But as has been pointed out by what some people call geomythologists, which is just a wondrous term, um, is that if you look at some of the sources uh, in, in ancient mythology, like Hesiod in his Theogony, which kind of tells the long story of how all the gods came to be, um, you'll find that... Um, these islands are named after nymphs and the order in which they were sired, the, the order of their birth from, in this case, someone who's known as King Asopos, which is the name of the major river that used to flow out near Athens. Um, the, the order of the birth of those nymphs corresponds to the order with which these islands would have emerged from the ocean. Yeah. Um, and so it seems like the myth retells 
a geological history that's 10,000 more years longer than than when the myth was recorded by Hesiod. Um, but but why not? I mean, people were there. People witnessed this thing happen, or generations of people witnessed this happen. Someone was there at the moment that bridge became an island, right? Someone, some person might have seen, there were fewer people around, but like some person <laughs> could have been present to watch the first trickle of water creep across the kind of coal of a hill in order to form a new sea. And of course, they would have told stories about it. Yeah, and and it speaks to how... Um how intelligence is carried forward in time in ways that we don't necessarily, or science doesn't necessarily know how to take seriously, but there it is. That's knowledge that's been yeah, carried. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's carried forth always in, in lived tradition and in yeah. practice. Is there's no magic way of transmuting this into another medium that will survive forever. It will end up getting retold and retold over and over again, and it will get changed mm. in that process. Mm. And, you know, and you just see this thing getting handed on and passed down and passed down over time. Um, because it can only exist as living practice. There's no like separating it off from the world, as we've described. Uh, I want to return to technology. You know, you, you mentioned before this this way in which the internet actually the creation of the internet helped us grasp what is happening in the natural world. Um, you said it was a gift from the technological to the ecological. You you write about how. Um, you know, one of the greatest misunderstandings of the 20th century, which persists into the present, was that everything was ultimately a decision problem. And when computers came along, there was, you know, it was easy to fall into this idea that the universe is like a computer, the brain is like a computer, that we and plants and animals and bugs are like computers. Um, and you've also said that our contemporary networked computational technologies might yet be our fullest attempt since the development of language to draw ourselves closer to nature, however carelessly and unconsciously. So talk me through that. <laughs> um, well, that's just because of my crazily optimistic belief that we <laughs> are being constantly brought closer to the world. And in, in that, I think I'm, you know, I'm talking about quite a few things in there, but in one case, I'm particularly talking about AI. Mm -hmm. um, I get AI is an overriding fascination, but I, I have it with quite a few of these technologies, which, you know, they, they go through this amazing process. I've done this before with things like self-driving cars or, you know, other, other new other new bits of tech where there are things that, you know, suddenly in our lifetime are going from this is what life will be like in the year 3000 to like a boring everyday reality, like just like that, you know, <laughs> just mm. sort of suddenly. And everyone's like, whoa, 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 what, that exists now. Mm. Um, and this is happening with AI, but in this really like boring rubbish way where it's just stealing everyone's art and making bad cartoons. Um, but it's it's here in, in some form. Um, but my constant hope is that it can't just be that. It's more interesting than that. It has so much cultural weight and it has so much pull on us. The fact that it there's this huge disparity between our fascination with it, because, you know, we have this deep, deep cultural human fascination with AI and the incredible banality of its reality yeah. as put forward it's, by tech companies. It's reality as opposed to the things that keep getting promised that it will do for yeah, us one day. Exactly. Well, not just promise, but they uh -huh. really imagine, you know, uh -huh. that we imagine something, unfortunately, mostly like ourselves, but that's, again, just the limits of our own imagination. Mm. But we're imagining something that will shake us to our core fundamentally, right? Right, right. right. Um, you know, and we are we are capable of imagining something that powerful. But what we're essentially imagining is another intelligence, and that that's mm -hmm. to me what I think is fundamental. Is like we're so bad at imagining 
non-human intelligence, that we have to build this kind of vast mythology, because that's kind of what it is, of AI, of our own creation, of some kind of Frankenstein, weird science fiction conglomeration of, of 20th century myths in order to imagine that something like other intelligence could exist at all. And then we're going to put all of our work into this. We're going to put all of the billions of dollars and we're going to put all of this press and we're going to put all this tech and science into making this thing real because we want it to exist so much. And the end result is that we are going to notice that non-human intelligence exists. Like that's for me is the, is, is the thing that happens at the end of that, is that we, we lose some kind of grip on our solipsism as being the only intelligent things around. Okay. And there's so much strangeness in that desire because it's somewhat sort of self-obliterating. Yeah. But the fact that we want it so much tells me that we yearn towards not being this, you know, incredibly remote, smart, you know, special thing. Like, you know, uh-huh. that we really, we, we understand that there's something wrong with that belief. Uh. Uh. And that, you know, that, that, um, that it doesn't match reality. And that's why something like AI has to exist. Because there's something so at odds with our being in the world that we could be so singular and strange. That's maybe one way of understanding it. It's just it's just scary to think how much wreckage there might be <laughs> along that learning path. Well, yeah, I mean, history isn't exactly promising on on that regard, is yeah. it? Uh, which is why I'm not, I'm not advocating that path at all. But mm-hmm. I would point out that it is the one that we're on. I want to say that I feel like one of the great puzzles of of this century is that we're faced with these existential, interconnected, global challenges, massively complex, that require us to transcend either or thinking as a matter of survival and actually to grapple with complexity at a species level. And we have landed ourselves on these technological platforms and with technological tools that are based on binary code, which doesn't make sense. And you you tell really amazing stories of all kinds of experimental things that are happening and people coming at this in different ways. I will say that something for me, I, I'm such a believer in that the origins of anything are somewhat deterministic, um, that, they, that they ripple through um, mm-hmm. everything that comes next. And I was so excited in your book to read about that Leibniz, Gottfried Leibniz, this polymath, had and also a very religious person, had a role in the development of binary numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that for him, rather than this binary being about an, the ultimate either or, um, that the purity of the one and the zero were symbolic of the Christian idea of creation, ex nihilo, out of nothing, something. In other words, the one and the zero were symbolic of emergence. Um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Though, which, to be clear, a very kind of traditional Christian view of what that emergence meant. But yes, I mean, yeah. he was contrasting both the materialism of his time, but also the kind of free scientific thinking. So I'm, I'm yeah, complex, but yes. Co- yeah, yes. But, but it's still, more it's, interesting than just ones and zeros. Exactly. And and like, there it is. At least there's this little chink of light. Yeah. <laughs> That in the DNA well, also the, of the, the binary, the, the, you know, mm-hmm. he got that idea out of the I Ching, and then he worked with the I Ching, right? Yeah, oh. yeah. I mean, tell uh, that's so fascinating. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, no, I mean that 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 that, that um, you know, he was he was trying to shore up this idea he had of ones and zeros being emblematic of creation ex nihilo, of the kind of power of creation and ultimately of God, and he was looking for examples of it in other 
ancient traditions, uh, i.e. so that he could show it came not just out of his own kind of study, but mm -hmm. that was like present within the history of humanity more broadly. And he had a friend who was a Jesuit uh, missionary to uh, the 17th century, 17th century, yes, Chinese court, uh, who sent him back some of the first images of the I Ching ever seen in the West. Uh, this kind of ancient system of divination that, of course, is all based on chance, is all based on the kind of the whim of the environment and the world and the universe kind of speaking through this system of numbers and thus support for his idea of uh, kind of emergence and ex nihilo creation in binary code. Mm -hmm. So all, all of this non-deterministic, all of this... Um, kind of chance randomness that for me is very much associated with the, the kind of froth and bubble of the, of the living world lies behind the, the kind of very cold rationalism of numbers as we understand them today. Yeah. And again, is part of this why I, I sort of insist that despite all appearances and despite all indications of the contrary, like technology is constantly trying to draw our attention back to the world because it is part of the world. Mm -hmm. And it is only us that make that separation and distinction that thinks that, that, that high technology, the things that we make, are somehow our own creations rather than being, you know, part of uh, the vast panoply of becoming, the, 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 everything being equally evolved. As we said earlier, that, you know, that computers and satellites and binary numbers are as much part of that ongoing evolution as kind of butterflies and birds, right. that they're all kind of springing from the same source and this, there's no meaningful separation between any of them. something else you wrote that felt to me kind of immediately transferable to to how we live right it's it's a question again um, and you're talking about understanding the intelligence the life of the more than human world of um all, you know all that is living around us and you said where we start to move forward is when we learn to ask questions which are less concerned with are you like us and more interested in, what is it like to be you? Yeah, that's a you know that's a reflection on on the way in which we've always judged non-human beings, and indeed you know uh, other humans. Other quite, human beings, we found time. ways to distinguish ourselves from. Yeah, yeah, and if, uh, we only value that which is translatable into a, a quality that we recognise in ourselves. Um, you know, it's it's the way we structure things around kind of empathy and identification um, rather than as around practices of solidarity yes. which recognize yeah. the value of other things without having to without having to identify with them as being like us um, you know that's basically how we've how we've always operated and it has limited our our perception and awareness of the the vitality of other beings mm -hmm. but um but other beings have not just have their own ways of, of doing things but also have a lot of the answers to questions that we find very difficult to frame of how to live in this world. Um, there's plenty of answers to those questions, plenty of types of knowledge, plenty of ways of understanding the world that are held and practiced by non-humans. And uh, for me, I feel very strongly that the kind of key to our meaningful survival and our flourishing is to be found in, in learning those lessons and paying attention to them very closely. Yeah, and also there's this phrase that you introduce again and again and 
I mean, there's this quote by John Muir, when we try to pick out anything by itself, we find it hitched to everything else in the universe, which is what you and I have been talking about since his lifetime. We, we know that was such, such incredible detail. But as you say, again and again, we share a world, right? We share a world. And surely the ultimate thing that we know in our bodies, we must know in our bodies, we know it in our language and places, as we've talked about, or somehow we strangely have to, we have to learn, relearn. Yeah, we have to learn and we have to fight. Um, it's you know, it's a, it's not just a, it's not just something which we've forgotten. It's something that has been, like, deliberately excluded. Mm-hmm. And you know, so much of this is the separation that we experience from from the rest of the world is deliberate because it benefits others in certain ways. It benefits other forms of power in various ways. Um, and so it's really important, I think, to remember as well. As I say, yeah, this is a. This is a process of kind of re-education along multiple levels, mm. uh, one of, of, of making ourselves more aware, but of also, you know, thinking about how we, how we take action and reframe so much of the priorities of our culture around making better worlds. Yeah. I'm curious about your sense of time and how that, what time is and how it works and <laughs> why it matters, how that might have um, been affected by all of this work. For a very long time, I've, I think I've had this quite a holographic idea of time itself. Mm. Um, the experience I describe in the book of, um, of doing a little basic time-lapse photography, which I found to be an incredibly powerful technique for just making myself aware of other lives mm. and of the vitality of the world. So what I did was I bought like a little cheap you know, time-lapse camera, something that you just basically set up and leave there and it takes photos and made these like really terrible low quality time lapses of like plants in my garden and in my living room but incredibly powerful ones because these were plants that I lived with all the time and I knew um, but I'd never seen them mm. as clearly as I saw them when this little machine mediated between us mm. and transformed them you know that, that translated between their time frame and mine in this incredibly powerful way mm. and it's, it's a really key point here that I, that's always worth remaking which is that most of us have seen these kind of time lapses now um, they become a bit of a staple of kind of nature documentaries and stuff like this. And that's great. They're wonderful. They're very beautiful. But they do not have the same transformative effect that I'm talking about unless one makes them oneself. Oh. Um, because it's one of these things that's embodied. Like, if you just watch a time lapse on YouTube or nature documentary, you don't really know how long it took. Like, there isn't... Right. The translation doesn't happen because it still only happens to you for those 30 seconds. When you make it yourself, you have the experience of the actual 24 hours that are compressed into those 30 seconds. Does that make sense? Yeah, and you're also and sharing you, you life embody, with that thing you've been yeah, photographing. Yeah, right? you, you really embody it, and that's a yeah. totally different way of experiencing and understanding the world. Mm. And what about consciousness? And that might be connected. How How, how is your understanding of consciousness evolving? <laughs> Going deeper, um, I actually, I mean, I, I, I was quite careful not to talk about consciousness in the book, mm-hmm. and I mostly talk about intelligence, and those are two very different things. Yeah, but I know it makes absolutely no sense to me that you could somehow locate consciousness within a particular physical structure when it is incredibly clear to me that consciousness is something that exists outside the physical universe, that exists completely outside of everything that we perceive physically. And it's something that we partake in. Mm. And as, mm-hmm. as as Alan Watts says, like, you know, we come out of the world like like waves out of water. We exist as kind of standing waves of a much greater field of energy, the quantum field, as some would describe it. 
And we're just particular incarnations of that. And our consciousness is the bit that still connects us to that underlying field. Mm. Um, and yeah, yeah, for me, it exists on a completely different plane to things like intelligence and embodiment that are fascinating, but are, are not the same thing. You know, to that point about like, how we learn, um, it feels like to me like so much that we learn collectively and that we're learning through all the things you and I have been talking about are things that, as we've been speaking, in many ways we knew forever. If if we only knew them on, in our bodies or we carried them around in words, um, and that, that's, what all, some, that's, that's what all the all the philosophical traditions and mystical traditions say, right? You know this already. It's just a process of remembering. Yeah, and that and that that we that we know things, and then and then the learn what feels like the learning is we know them for the first time with consciousness. Um, but I think that thinking about what you just said about that doesn't mean that it's it's not a it's not necessarily a light going off inside us that it's us partaking in in something. I mean, here's a line of yours. Uh, Every time we train our most sophisticated tools upon the central questions of our existence, who are we, where do we come from, where are we going, the answer comes back clearer, everyone and everywhere. <laughs> it's good, isn't it? I mean, I don't mean that about my rating, I mean, but that realisation, like it's such, yeah. that, that's, to me it's just so clear that that is what everything is constantly yelling at us, you know, if we choose to pay attention, if we choose to hear it. Mm-hmm. Just, just as we finish, um, how would you start now, having steeped in all of this and li- you know, kind of living these questions that you live? How would you start to answer this vast question of what it means to be human? Perhaps how has that evolved? How you might start to answer that question? I mean, what it what it is to be human is such a small thing I know. in this universe, right? Like, just try to be nice, um, be kind, babies, be kind, as Vonnegut wrote. Uh, that's that's the only guide, um, you know. Try to be good and try to do the least harm and and be kind. That's that's the only human bit. But what it means to be more than human—that's something else. That's the bigger question, I think, for me, is what it means to transcend that narrow frequency of being human in this time here to perhaps partake of something, something, something far greater, something more, more than human. Um, that is actually the, the more deeper and meaningful connection to everything around us. James Bridle's books are Ways of Being, Animals, Plants, Machines, The Search for a Planetary Intelligence, and before that, New Dark Age, Technology and the End of the Future. Their writing has appeared in The Guardian, Wired, The Atlantic, and many other places. Their art has been exhibited around the world, including recently at Gnome Gallery in Berlin. The On Being Project is Chris Hegel, Lauren Drummerhausen, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Suzette Burley, Zach Rose, Colleen Scheck, Julie Seipel, Gretchen Honnold, Padre Gautuma, Gautam Shrikishan, April Adamson, Ashley Herr, Amy Chatelaine, Romy Neme, Cameron Musar, Kayla Edwards, Juliana Lewis, and Tiffany Champion. 
On Being is an independent, nonprofit production of the On Being Project. We are located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. Our closing music was composed by Gautam Shrikishan. And the last voice you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. Our funding partners include the Hearthland Foundation, helping to build a more just, equitable, and connected America, one creative act at a time. The Fetzer Institute, supporting a movement of organizations applying spiritual solutions to society's toughest problems. Find them at Fetzer.org. Kaliapeya Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality, supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on Earth. Learn more at Kaliapeya.org. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.